0: You're listening to the live drop. In this episode across the cold border into mid-century Canada, wartime Ottawa, to what some say is the start of the Cold War itself, the Gazenko affair in which Americans, British, and Canadians realized the true extent of the Soviet espionage operation in North America for the first time. Igor Gazenko, on September 5th of 1945, left the Soviet embassy on Charlotte Street in Ottawa. He's a cipher clerk working for the GRU. But it wasn't an easy defection. No one would believe that the Russians were spying, or the Soviets, were spying on the Canadians. He was turned away by a major newspaper and even had to threaten self-harm at the front of the Canadian Foreign Office before the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, realized of how valuable the information was that he held in 200 pages and his experience as an intelligence operative for the Russians. Also, what he uncovered was the spying of dozens in and around Ottawa, the capital city of Canada, controlled by the GRU resident Nikolai Zolotkin. I'm speaking in this interview with Joyce Wayne. Her book, The Last Night of the World, is a work of historical fiction that weaves in the real players in this affair, along with a new character based on someone who'd seen it all firsthand, her own father. I'm speaking with Joyce from Toronto on January 13th, 2020. Begin transmission now. Are you originally from Toronto?
1: No, I'm from Windsor, Ontario.
0: Where is Windsor? I've heard of it.
1: Windsor is right across the border from Detroit. It's almost like like one one city okay yeah there's just there's the detroit river between the two so i was born and and raised there
0: there's a bridge that just goes right across right
1: and a tunnel and a tunnel is a tunnel yes the famous you
0: you grew up on a border town
1: i grew up very much on a border town yeah and I, yeah, What's
0: interesting is as soon as I cross over the border, you know, maybe stopping a Tim Hortons or something. What <laughs> usually I always expect there to be this shocking difference when you go to another country. After they ask you the questions of where you're going, what are you doing, you know, the sort of spiritual check they give you when you cross the border. But I, I'm always amazed that people kind of within that certain region, like within a maybe a mile or so of the river, people sound similar, really similar.
1: Very similar. I mean, half of my family lived in Detroit, the other half lived in Windsor. We crossed the border all the time. Um, But of course, things have changed since then quite a bit. Um, You know, I remember going across, sometimes I didn't even have ID as a a kid, but it's very different now. Borders have always scared me a little bit. My father was always in trouble and I knew that so there, and he would get nervous as we got closer to customs.
0: Yeah, I'd like to get into that a little bit. Your 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 father's experience. Was your father remember the communist Party? or was he, was he uh I think he was a labor activist you said?
1: Yeah, he he well first of all, can I ask you something? How did you get into this? And then I'm happy to of course talk about the like what got you in, involved in in wanting to do a podcast about Espionage?
0: Oh, good question. Maybe it's growing up on a border town. <laughs> I, feel like a, I feel like a spy every time I go to get fish and chips in Brockville, you know? Right. It's like, no, I'm not looking for state secrets. I just want to get better beer. No, um, but with you specifically, it was Ottawa that interested me because it was so close to where I grew up. I never really thought of it as this international city of intrigue like for example berlin where i was stationed um when i listened to your interview with i'm a little bit late to to the dance but but i really enjoyed your interview i really enjoyed your interview with shane i you know looked up your book and read it and um, started looking into the uh, Guzenko affair and i thought wow be really wonderful to talk to you if you're available and you are
1: yeah, thank you.
0: And we have about five minutes left after that introduction, <laughs> so here we go.
1: No, I think the thing about Ottawa that's really um, fascinating, I lived there for a number of years. I went to school there. I went to university there. Is, it's, it's a spy town. There's no question. I mean, not at the same level, of course, that Washington is or Berlin. But there are a, there's a lot of activity going on there. You know, I was interested in politics and there were points in my life where I, I couldn't ignore it, what was going on. Couldn't ignore what? Well, couldn't ignore that there were people, because there's so many embassies. I mean, there's all the embassies mm. and there were Russians all over town. Russians like to eat in the fanciest, most expensive restaurants in Ottawa and Hull, you know, across the border in Quebec, where there were really good, really good French restaurants. And so if one went there for dinner, you would see these this, these great huge tables of Russians having a dinner and enjoying themselves. And Ottawa, was, a, I think, was a good place for them to be stationed. And as one of your other podcasts, I was listening to one of your other podcasts, and Canada's a very good entree, entrance place into the U.S., of course. And um, I was a bit involved in politics myself, so I saw... A little bit about what happens
0: you said you worked in politics as well could you feel like there was a boundary in, in even in casual conversation that kind of could or couldn't be crossed when you're talking with people like that
1: yes uh, there there was I mean you would assume you see I was involved in left-wing politics in Ottawa when I was um, a student as were many students during the 70s sometimes the the Soviet embassy they were around, and they were not involved in anything we did, I would say, or not that I knew about anyways. But there was a feeling that there were people involved. And the RCMP uh, was very active at that time, keeping files on, on student radicals. So let's say my first encounter with that was during the War Measures Act during the Quebec crisis in 1971 and when Laporte was, was killed by the FLQ supposedly, then I was on the Hill, the House of Commons Hill, demonstrating against the War Measures Act and I think there were more RCMP agents and taking notes than there were student demonstrators. You
0: they weren't making a- any attempt to disguise themselves or blend in?
1: No, not really. Maybe they thought they were, but they clearly they were. <laughs> you could tell who they were. And someone told me the other day that during that period there were eight hundred thousand files on Canadians in terms of social justice activities that the RCMP kept. They were pretty well everywhere. It kept it kept the RCMP pretty busy for a while.
0: So they were responsible for counterintelligence. I'm assuming back then. I mean, does the CSIS do any of that now? Or is it still the RCMP?
1: CSIS is yes. The CSIS wasn't around at that quite at that time in the early '70s. Um, now apparently they they do all of that. But the RCMP was and the RCMP were the people who interrogated or debriefed Gazenko back in in 1945 46. Mm-hmm. So there's a long history of the RCMP taking this on as their as their role.
0: Yeah, the Gazenko. I looked at I looked up his house on Google Maps. I think I've driven by it a bunch of times like on my way to like a little Vietnamese restaurant.
1: But um <laughs> I thought
0: that's that's the place this little
1: I know this little place on Somerset, right? This horrible little apartment with the round windows.
0: Yeah, this bizarre round. It looks like it was either built 2 years ago or like 100 years ago. You can't figure it out.
1: It's it's across from a park. I I lived by there when I was a student and I used to walk by this inkle apartment quite a, quite a bit. It's a strange place. I I went to visit it about a year and a half ago again because now there's a plaque in the park oh there Uh, is yeah there is they put a plaque they're talking about igor kazenko and that when he defected on september 5th 1945 but it was you know a huge defection and i think a lot of people would agree that it was the spark that started the cold war had so much information about Soviet activities in Canada and the United States, and it was in 200 pages of documents, and after vi- some futile attempts, I don't know if you know the story, but some of it is in my book, and it's real, that Kazenko defected the same day that the first atomic was an atomic bomb test on that day, a really major one by the United States. And there was mm-hmm. quite a bit of material related to, to nuclear arms that he, that he sent over. So he went to um, the Ottawa journal, which was a newspaper then that came out in the evening. And he went to the night desk editor and he said, I'm Mike Gorgazenko and I'm defecting from the Soviet embassy. And I have all this material. and." And the desk editor said, you're a joker, get out of here, go home. You're drunk, I'll call you cab. So he was afraid that if he went home, he was going, his wife and child were there, he he would be picked up by, by Soviet agents, and that would be the end for him. But he, he, he ended up going to the foreign embassy, the embassy of external, or excuse me, the Department of Foreign Affairs, and he threatened that he would kill himself if he couldn't see the minister. And it took quite a while, all day long and then they finally thought well, maybe this guy's legit and they sent him over to RCMP headquarters in Ottawa. No, but oh, seriously.
0: I mean, his wife was pregnant at the time. I also read How the Cold War Began by Amy Knight, which has some yeah. interesting background. But it also mentioned in a little footnote that his wife, Svetlana, had also been a sniper in the Russian army so she seemed to be kind of having the steel nerves of the pair
1: probably yes I mean he was a bit of a buffoon as we I think I mean I remember him as a kid on TV with a bag over his head he would appear on Canadian television quite a bit but he would wear a paper bag over his head which is ridiculous because if the Russians had or the Soviets had wanted to do away with them they probably could have at any time
0: it's kind of hard to take somebody serious with a paper bag over their head.
1: It was ridiculous, and I remember watching it as a kid with my parents, and especially my father. No, it was my father who, um, who was a member of the Communist Party in the 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. and, and he was in Montreal and in Ottawa, and he was the one who actually told me most of the stories that make up the book of Last Night of the World.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating story you tell. And I, I I felt like it was um I mean it was I guess it's a speculative espionage fiction, I, I suppose, or his speculative espionage historical fiction. Could that be accurate?
1: Yeah, or alternative, alternative. historical fiction. Yeah. yeah, I mean it was
0: exciting. It was exciting to see these names pop up that I'd recognize from just doing what little bit of research that I'd done. But um I really liked your main character, Frida. Frida Linton, and I was just wondering where you came up with her. She, I was in—I was amazed with her, her awareness of herself and her ef- effect on people around her, especially her effect on men. It seemed like a combination of Red Sparrow and Fleabag, <laughs> <laughs> in the best way.
1: Yeah, and I especially the little twist with little Philby bit. at
0: the end. I thought,
1: well, okay, nice. I I hadn't seen Fleabag. When I wrote this novel, because it wasn't it wasn't on air yet, um, F- Frida was a real person. She existed, mm-hmm. and um, she was a member of the Communist Party, and she was an active agent for the Soviets during that period of time. She did work for this guy named John Grierson, who was head of the National Film Board really important fellow in Ottawa. He was doing all sorts of propaganda documentaries that we were shown, that were shown to Canadians on behalf of the war effort. And she was his secretary. And I'm quite sure that there's enough evidence that she, that she at least brought him on as a fellow traveler, if you know what I mean. Right. And, um, So she existed, and she's my interpretation. Uh, We don't know much about Frida. We don't know, we don't even really know what happened to her. And in fact, you know, I tried to get all uh, through Freedom of Information Act, I tried to get as much as I could about her. Now, I got stuff from the US, and I got stuff from MI5 and MI6 in Britain, no problem, easy, but I could get really virtually nothing about her from Canadians.
0: I think there was an article in the Gazette where she was, she turned herself in three years, three years later. This is 1949 in Montreal. And she was represented by J.L. Cohen. Right. And he pretty much got her off. And that's the last... There was that's a
1: the last of it. And Cohn was a lawyer for the Communist Party at that time. Mm-hmm. And he he defended he defended a lot of people who were picked up in the RCMP sweep after. Um, and that was the end. That was that's when the tail on Frida is over. Like you can see most of it in the FBI records are very are very clear and very good where she was working and what she was doing. Then she tried to come back to Canada, just as you say, and um, and they let her go. And we don't really know what happened to her after that. She just completely disappeared. I know some people who think they knew her, maybe. I mean, it was a small community. There were a lot of Jewish people in Montreal involved in the Communist Party. So a, a lot of them knew each other. Some people were angry at me for Why? writing about her. Well, I think there's a feeling among the Jewish community that this is a part of Jewish history in Canada that no one wants to remember. Does that make sense to you?
0: Oh, it makes a good deal of sense. I mean, they, he also mentioned in this book, The Last Night of the World, that it, that just the, the idea of espionage was, I mean, there was a service of anti-Semitism involved with it.
1: There was a huge amount of anti-Semitism because, During that time, during that period, there was a great deal of anti-Semitism in Canada. And as events ramped up for the Second World War, there was anti-Semitism in Canada, just as there was in the U.S. So Jews were in a very difficult position. There was still, among um, many members of the press, in government, quite a lot of discrimination. And I think because there were a lot of figures who were Jewish who were prominent in the Communist Party. Today, that's a part of Jewish history in Canada that a lot of people seem to wish to forget, mm-hmm. I find.
0: <laughs> now, even the Gazenko affair, I, I first found out about it when I was at the um, Ottawa Military Museum, and it was just this one little glass panel which had a book. It wasn't your book. I think it was somebody else's.
1: <laughs> but, uh,
0: it might have been Guzenko's book, this long book that he wrote. Yes. But, but there was a tiny little panel in there, and it talked about the Guzenko affair, about this one – Russian GRU spy who essentially tried to turn himself down, but he couldn't really get arrested. Yeah. That sort of piqued my interest in it, but it it looks like the entire Guzenko affair doesn't really I mean, you mentioned there's a plaque, but that doesn't seem to be really spoken about.
1: Exactly. And that's the surprise. Here's this fantastic story, right? Right. Out of the the Russian, I mean, you know, out of the Russian Soviet embassy on Charlotte street in, in Ottawa is being run this, this r- r- large ring of Soviet spies gathering nuclear information on the developments in creating the first nuclear bomb it's in the 1940s now if you put your mind back to that time of course the Soviets were our ally right they were our best friends they were they were fighting a desperate battle on the Eastern Front and um, in a very prominent, department store of that time, Eaton's Montreal's Main Street, the Soviet flag was flying. I mean, we really did see them as our best friends. Of course, we know now from everything that's been researched and written that these two sides didn't really trust each other. There was a lot of cryptography, I guess, going on, um, trying to decode Russian ciphers and so forth. And there was a strong feeling of particularly from Churchill from Winston Churchill that he certainly didn't trust you know the communists right right he didn't trust Stalin didn't like Stalin and I think that Roosevelt had a better relationship with Stalin I don't know how much he trusted him but I think he helped the russians a bit more he helped the soviets a bit more he, with a program called lend lease and gave them equipment during the war that helped them fight off the nazis but what was going on in canada was fabulously interesting because it all had to do their serious spying had to do with nuclear issues We know a lot about the Manhattan Project and we know a lot about what was going on outside of Santa Fe and Los Alamos with Oppenheimer, but we Canadians don't have clue about what was going on at a place called Chalk River north of Ottawa, where there were huge experiments going on in terms of developing the first atomic bomb. So I've gotten tremendously interested in that since finishing Last Night of the World. I'm working on a new book now, and I want to set quite a bit of it up at Chalk River. There were a number of of Soviet spies working on the most important and delicate information of the time at this laboratory called Chalk River. And it's still there today.
0: This was Raymond uh, Boyer?
1: Well, Boyer was different. Boy, you know, Boyer was different. And you, you've done your homework, for sure.
0: Well, curse cursory one. Nun Ray was, was the one that was up there.
1: <laughs> Boyer was in Montreal. And he was doing, he was doing um, some special kind of research on something, some kind of chemical that would create a huge explosion, much bigger than dynamite.
0: RDX. He invented RDX. RDX. Right?
1: RDX, RDX. And Boye you know, Boy was close to all the members of the Communist Party. And it all came out in the Gazanko report. Boye went to jail. But what was happening at Chalk River, which is about an hour and a half drive north of Ottawa, and Mark, it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, if you yeah, want to I'm think- looking
0: it up in the map. I've never had to hit the the minus button so many times to figure out where I am.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, 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 there we go. Yeah.
1: It's nowhere still. I mean, I went up again this summer because I've become really interested in the place, and I can't believe it. Canadians don't know anything about Chalk River, and I'm not exaggerating a bit when I say they don't know anything. So here it is in the middle of nowhere, it's right on the Ottawa River, where the Ottawa River is enormous. There it's so wide and it's so powerful. On the other side is just you know, what we Canadians call bush, like it's the forest.
0: Well, it's Quebec. It's the border Quebec. to Ontario and Quebec. It's
1: Quebec, and there still is not is nothing there. It's pretty unsettled territory. So this is called the Ottawa Valley, and it's just north of Petawawa. And you would know what Petawawa is. It's the largest military base in Canada and the training base for Canadian military. So Churchill got, the, see, they were working on these things in, in Britain. But as the Blitz, you know, intensified and they became more and more concerned that the Nazis might invade the UK, Churchill got the idea to move move research into the atomic bomb to Canada. So he called, he said he was going to set up a company and they gave it this name. It's called, it was called Tube Alloys. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of innocuous name. Mm-hmm. And they and they built this this laboratory at Chalk River, but really the idea was to was was how heavy water was involved in creating a nuclear bomb and what role it would play. Perfect spot in the middle of nowhere on this enormous river. Guarded just south of the plant is is Petawawa, this big army base. Mm-hmm. And then North of Chalk River, the Canadians developed a town called Deep River, and it was where all the scientists and engineers would co- would live with their families uh, while they were working on the bomb. So I went up there this summer, and Deep River is indeed still there. It's quite an amazing place. It has the highest concentration of PhDs in the entire country. Really? Yeah. Really, so you I. Only I, I one,
0: you only got one Tim Hortons. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know well, if that means anything.
1: No, it does. It means quite a lot. But uh, we looked for my husband and I looked for a restaurant. When we got there, we just wanted to have a sandwich or something. It wasn't so easy. But what they do have is a drama group, a library, a very nice hospital, good schools all sorts of uh, book clubs. It's a very, very sophisticated and interesting place in the middle of nowhere.
0: We got a yacht and tennis club, a ski club.
1: Yes, all of that too. And in the summer, it's, you know, it's, it's habitable. I can't imagine what it's like in the middle of the winter. And I, you know, i lived my whole life in Canada. I even lived in Ottawa, but I kept thinking, what is this place like in January, let's say now, it must be just so isolated. But I can't, I was invited to go up there to give a talk about my book. And I did. And luckily, a bunch of scientists or retired scientists from Chalk River wanted to join me and we had dinner. And I got to know them and they had you know they're really, really smart people. They had done all their research on Frida Linton and Fred Rose and the characters in my mm. book. They brought it along with them to dinner,
0: with questions probably, right? And, Dog-eared pages.
1: Oh yeah, the whole, the the whole schmear, as we say, huh? But I was very interested by them, and I liked them a lot. And they, I'm going up there again in March, and they, one of their members has written a play about the spies. The Russian spies, the Soviet spies who were at Chalk River during the war, and they want me to see it. So, of course, I am. I'd love to and go see that. When is it? it? It's <clears throat> March the 26th, 27th, 20, 29th, and their own theater group, their little theater group, is doing it, and it has been written by a person who's in the group. Oh I my god, that sounds cool. I'll follow, up with, I'll follow up
0: about that. It's not fascinating. Yeah,
1: follow up with me because you know I don't I'm going. Like there's no way I'm missing this. And they said to me, Well, um, we can give you the addresses of the houses that the Soviet spies lived in during the war, so you can you can see them.
0: So did these Soviet spies, were they known to be Soviet at the time I no, mean it's
1: no no definitely not at the time one is in my book Alan Nun May he was and he was a member of the Communist Party you see a lot of these guys they came out of the same world that um, the Cambridge Five were in Philby so forth right McLean Burgess and they knew them and they joined the party they joined the Communist Party when they were at university in the 30s at Cambridge and some of them were physicists and scientists. Alan May was in Canada working for the Brits, and he was a lead scientist at Chalk River. He developed, along with another member of the Communist Party, named Bruno Pontecorvo, who was an Italian scientist who was also a member of the communist party. And he was also sending information to Moscow. So those were the two key slides. And they were really important in, in developing, figuring out how to use heavy water plants. And
0: what was the difference? Was, oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm.
1: No, no, you go ahead.
0: Oh, I just wanted to know what was the difference between what was going on in Los Alamos and what was happening at Chalk river.
1: I think what they needed was they needed to understand how to cool the rods And how, how heavy water would work in that way. And of course that wasn't, you know, at Los Alamos, that wasn't the place to do that. Mm -hmm. So they were working hand in glove with the people at, at Los Alamos in that way. And the very first prototype of a nuclear reactor, and you can see pictures of it if you look online, was called the ZEEP, Z-E-E-P, and it was the very first one, and it was built at Chalk River, even before Los Alamos. So it was a very hot and interesting place to be during the war, and here were all these scientists up in the frozen north, a number of whom were spying for the Soviets.
0: So this group, was it called the Zabotan... Ring, was there a certain name? To, I mean, like 39, I couldn't believe it, because initially I thought there were 13, and then I started reading, oh. I was like, there's a lot more than 13 here. Like um, well, Zubotin, were well, What were they called, and were they all focused on, um, were they mostly predominantly focused on the research up north?
1: Zabodin, of course, is a real person, Nikolai Zabodin. He was the military attache at the Soviet embassy in Ottawa. He worked for the GRU, and he ran this ring of spies.
0: Right.
1: They, they did varied things. I think this was the most important part of the research uh, because the Soviets didn't trust the Americans or any of the um, non-communist countries. They were afraid that, that they would get the bomb and use it on, on Russia. So Stalin was very wary. You know, that's been documented. He just did not trust the Allies. And he kind of knew from all the spying that was being done that there were all these secret things happening that the Allies weren't telling him about that had to do with with nuclear developments. So it was part of what Zabotin was doing. It wasn't everything. A lot of it was really silly stuff. For instance... In my book, I talk a lot about Fred Rose, an MP. He was the first and only communist member of parliament ever elected in Canada for a riding in Montreal. And Zabotin asked him to spy on what was going on in the House of Commons in Ottawa. And Mm. he did. And he didn't really need to do that. He could have read something called Hansard, which is a transcript of everything that's said during the debates in the House of Commons. It was a huge error on the part of the Soviets to get everyday you know, members, just people who had joined the party at that time, to spy on information that could have been easily found by looking it up. So a lot of it wasn't, wasn't confidential or classified. My father would always say to me when I was young, they could have just gotten all that information by reading the paper, the newspapers, right? But instead they want us to send them these encrypted documents to Moscow with all this information, very similar to what was going on in the U.S. I
0: imagine to some extent, the Russians had it a little bit better in Canada than they did in, in Russia or the Soviets did. So in some way you'd almost want to create a job for yourself or even make it look more important than it was just so you could stay there.
1: Nobody wanted to go back. Right. You're right. I mean, that was Gazenko's thing. He he was constantly worried that he would be sent back to Russia. And he, did, he was told that he was going back and he didn't want to. And that is ostensibly why he defected at that time, that he knew his time in Canada was up and he didn't want to leave Canada. Well, so, he was discovered by
0: one of the GRU officers, Melokin or something, who'd saw that he was sloppy with his with his craft and had put in a, a bad report on him. But and then he was going to be sent back. But it, it sounded like there was something between him and Zabotin that,
1: yes. um, yes, there. I think so. I mean, we don't know and it isn't documented, but Zabotin saved him from being sent back the first time. Um, that he was going to be sent back with his wife. But um, maybe, you know, Zabotin was a very debonair character. He was incredibly good-looking. He liked ladies, and the ladies liked him. He was leading the life of a playboy in Ottawa, and the Ottawa diplomatic society adored him. He was their favorite diplomat. He was invited everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it was a good gig for Soviet officials to be in Ottawa during the Second World War, if you can think about what was going on there.
0: And what about Nina Farmer? You didn't write about her in your book, but was she sort of meddled it into something else?
1: I don't really know much about her. You know, I decided I had to stick to a fairly small cast of characters or the book would... The thing about fiction is that you don't want it to go completely awry, huh? If you get too many characters, it's going to be misleading. So I wanted to concentrate on Zabotin, Frida Linton, and Fred Rose, and the character of Harry Vine, who, who is my father, is based on my father.
0: Oh, okay. I was wondering who Harry Vine was.
1: Yeah. So that's my father, and that's basically who he was.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I Because I was looking, I was like, who is he? Because there's another character named Henry Harris. I thought, <laughs> I well, doing some detective work trying to figure out who uh, Harry Vine was. But there you have it. He's your father. Yeah, no,
1: he was my father, and by the time I was born, he, was, he had left Montreal. He quit the party. He quit the Communist Party. He found out after the war what, what was really going on in the Soviet Union and he tried to contact. There were a lot of Soviet J- Jewish Soviet writers and intellectuals and thinkers and my father was involved with those and he tried to contact them and they'd all been killed, uh, murdered in, in Stalin's purges. Mm-hmm. And when when my father found out about that, he was of course totally disillusioned with the party and in a couple years he he left never to go back he was very bitter about it
0: so did was he actually in contact with the i mean you don't have to answer but was he actually in contact with the gru i mean they had some courier missions that they wanted him to to do in your book
1: i honestly don't know um I only, you know, he. there was only so much he would tell me. Uh, most of the information in the book I got from him. And then I would go and check the sources afterwards. Um, but I almost could write the book without doing any research. I, I pretty well knew most of it from the stories he told me as a child.
0: Wow. So your, your father, was, was he part of this ring? Yeah. But he was never, I mean, he was never brought to...
1: No, by the wasn't. RCMP. No, he wasn't. And and my brother, I have a half brother who's a great deal older than me, 25 years older than me, who says we never knew why he didn't get picked up. So Yeah, um, what was
0: his secret?
1: Uh, you know what? He was a very secretive guy. He didn't he wasn't a big talker. He didn't talk a lot. I don't know. Like he the answer I got was that he didn't stay in one place. He slept on a different couch every night. And so they couldn't pick him up because he they couldn't find him right now. I don't know if that's true or not. Could they not, if they'd really wanted to, maybe he wasn't, you know, maybe he wasn't high enough up in that, in that order to, for them, although they seem to like to pick up anybody they could. Yeah. So I, I don't really know. I, I, I really don't know why he wasn't picked up or maybe he was picked up because you know, all of this happened before I was born and there was, he was very careful about what he told me. but it
0: seemed like he wanted you to to know the story.
1: in his own way. yeah, he did. Well, he was old. see, he was almost he was almost sixty when I was born, six mm-hmm. zero so and my my mother was his third wife. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he he I think he, he wanted someone to talk to, and he was probably quite isolated in Windsor, Ontario, a small little town. Border town, and he he could see that I was interested in history, and so he started talking to me. But I he didn't ever give me any information that was incriminating. If you know what I mean, (laughs)
0: right? He never gave any actionable intelligence or anything.
1: No, he never gave me actionable intelligence, and so there was there was really nothing there I could I could wrap my arms around. But the story itself stuck with me my whole life. And I had written another novel set in Victorian England. And I, I realized after I wrote that I had to write a story about what had happened in Canada during the Second World War in terms of intelligence and counterintelligence. And since I've done that, it's gotten me entirely into that whole world. And, you know, there's a pile of books a mile high that I'm looking at that I'm reading now um, because we know a lot of it, but we, in Canada, we know, we don't know at all for sure. And we don't like talking about it here.
0: And you don't know what you don't know. That's and the you, don't,
1: you don't know what you don't know. And it's by nature. It, it seems to be a country that doesn't like to talk about these sorts of things.
0: Right. Like right
1: right? It's buried. And so if you ask even, if you ask most people, if they'd ever heard of Igor Gazenko or Chalk River, they'll say no. So my mission is to get a lot of this out. And I think particularly now, because of the world that we're living in, where there seems to be a lot of Soviet activity for the world every day as we speak, the thing that I find so fascinating is that essentially, you know, Take away the internet, which is, of course, a big part about, about it. Russian tactics are very similar to what they were during the war. It's the same old, same old. It's the same old way of destabilizing Western countries and also getting the information that's necessary and infiltrating different groups in Western countries in that, in that period, it was to move them to the left. Now it's to move them to the right.
0: That's Prussian drawing, drawing a parallel to what's happening right now. Because on the Internet, people the Cold War is over, so the Russians don't seem to be that big of a threat. And I, I imagine they kind of come and go somewhat like they did in 1942 in Ottawa. So, but I'm just wondering, you, you said, you said the tactics are the same. I know there's like disinformation and exciting divisions yeah. and things like that, but did you see that in the seventies? I mean, were they, you know, trying to support the left, you know, the left
1: students? were trying to support the left definitely in the seventies. And I think that, you know, there was still a Canadian communist party. Um, there was, the Peace Congress, which we found out, that was the uh, anti-nuclear movement in the West, in Britain, here in the United States. We found out, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, that that was completely funded and run by by the Soviet Union. So I think the KGB, or what was the KGB, the GRU, just is still there, have been the most important international forces in Russia-slash-Soviet life. You know, it, it's propelled their position on the world stage even after the fall of communism. Because otherwise, what what would be doing that? Have there
0: been any, any other instances of, uh, like like the Americans project, or I guess where, where Russians were sort of resettled in? I'm, I think there was that one family in Toronto where their two children are still we're their two sons are still
1: make
0: trouble yeah. the two sons are still trying to get um, Canadian citizenship
1: they got Canadian citizenship just recently I think just oh, before did. Christmas they finally did yes they were the children of illegals just like the television series the the wonderful television series the Americans mm-hmm and these two boys wanted to stay in Canada, and be Canadians, and they got they got it just before Christmas. They, they were at the Supreme Court. I know the lawyer who defended them. She won, and oh, they yeah, she won, and they got and they and they have citizenships. I I don't know. Um, I think the I don't know if there were as many illegals in Canada as there were in the U.S. I think, as one of your other guests said, Canada was a place to train russians or soviets in north american ways and once they got good at them at it they sent them down to the states
0: oh right so they practiced their their craft up there
1: (laughs) they practiced their craft up here and once because you know although of course there are serious differences the language is the same the clothes are the same so much of the culture is the same. So they came up here to Canada, trained them well, and um, then sent them down. But one thing that did happen after the Kazanko defection is that the Communist Party never came back into prominence in Canada. It was well enough known what had happened, that Fred Rose, a member of parliament, was spying for the Soviets. And after 1956, when Nikita Khrushchev came out with his hit, Stalin and the Cult of Personality and tried to redress in certain ways the wrongs that were done, most people left the Communist Party in Canada and never went back. And now it's, it's a tiny, tiny little group. There's probably 100, 100 people in it.
0: You know, it's always interesting as an American when I'm looking into, not that I do it often, but when I'm looking into historical events from a Canadian perspective or looking into things every once in a while, there'll be this, Oh, Oh, and below the border, this was going on. (laughs) You're just thinking, Oh my God, how you guys, how do you guys manage? I mean, at that time there was the house of un-American activities. I mean, Richard Nixon was kind of cutting his teeth. Anything had anything to do with communism was immediately assumed that you were spying for the Russians.
1: So, exactly,
0: but I mean, communism in the thirties, how would you compare that? I mean, you know, your father was that, of course there was, you know, the Cambridge five or however many there were, but I mean, how would you compare that now?
1: Well, it's a great question. I mean, you know, I was thinking about something like that the other day, of course, depression was the great depression of the 1930s was the event that spurred membership and growth of the communist party in canada i mean it was formed in a in a barn in guelph in 1924 or something but it really didn't take off until people started really suffering because of what happened during during the crash um and and also people who came from europe who had who knew about communism and were sympathetic to it they were coming into canada in in great numbers and and so the party was was quite strong in the 30s and it also attracted and this was true of course in the u.s too it attracted a lot of intellectuals and writers and public intellectuals and big thinkers people who had to leave europe because of the nazis Mm -hmm. they're huge you know important people like who Hannah Arndt, and I could go on and name them, they changed the tenor, the tone of intellectual discussion in New York City, for sure, in New York, and hence at that time in America. So there was great growth of looking at the world in a different way. And also, I think the Soviet Union was seen as a model. People thought, people left. They, they they immigrated from Canada to the U.S. and, and went to live in Moscow. We were saying, because they wanted to live that life. They thought it was much superior to the life that we were living in North America. Now, some of them came home because it did turn out to be so great after all. But the Soviet Union was looked upon as a place of real, both artistic and intellectual expression and a haven, of course, for the working class. Now, could that happen today? First of all, Communism is gone, (laughs) and could there be an attraction to a kind of socialism? I think everything that's happened in the U.S. with the election of Donald Trump, we can trace it back to the 2008 Great Recession and what happened, how many people were desperately hurt, lost everything, And, and of course the growth of globalization. But I do think that there's just such a huge group of people who were so damaged by that, that they're attracted to, to populist politics. And hence comes Trump, right? Right. In Canada, not the case. Because we really didn't, you know, our banks are very conservative. It's a conservative country. And we really didn't feel it that very much. There weren't, you know, there weren't repossessions of homes. None of that stuff happened here. mm mm-hmm. So could it happen now again? I don't see that happening in the same way it's happening in the U.S. with, let's say, someone like Bernie Sanders. Like, look at the numbers today.
0: Oh, look. they think he's going to win Iowa. It's, um,
1: he's going to win Iowa.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: which to me is is unbelievable. How I was, sh- I had written him off. had not you?
0: Yeah, especially after his after his. Heart attack. Heart attack. I thought, well, <laughs> he, he had a good run.
1: He had a good run. He's a great guy. You know, he's obviously a principled person. I love the fact that he doesn't change his position, right? What he said 30 years ago, he says today. What he said one month ago, he said, he says it over and over and over again. Millennials really like him. They're, tra- they're attracted to what he has to say. And you I know, think
0: it's an, it's an interesting American thing. You can't just be an attractive candidate. You have to inspire voters to actually vote. So it, I think mm-hmm. I think with Bernie, he's yeah, he's giving this, you know, semi utopian ver- version of what he, what he thinks what, what he wants and people are responding to that. Anyway, Mark,
1: so- but he could win.
0: I know. Well, I mean, I'd rather have him than than, than, um, Donald Trump. There goes half the
1: audience. I mean, he could win the Democratic nomination, put it that way, because just as you say, he he could inspire that group of voters, young people, many who haven't voted before, right? Mm -hmm. He could get – they really like him. I mean, my daughter is in her late 20s. She loves – she's very – and I said, oh, well, are you sure you don't? Don't you like Elizabeth Warren – but, you know, the Smith Warren doesn't, doesn't bring out that side of people as much. Bernie seems yeah. to be able to appeal to people on an emotional level as well as a political level or an intellectual level. So could things happen? Yeah. I mean, we could all, you know, we're so close to you, it feels like. You know, I watch more of CNN and MSNBC than I do of Canadian news. Mm -hmm. we could be in an election very shortly between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders.
0: Yeah. God, that would be interesting.
1: Wouldn't that be fascinating? And what is, no, no. What is the role that the Russians are playing in all this?
0: Well, it's fascinating because up here in upstate New York, I mean, once you get above, I mean, they do have have this strange little, uh, this, this strange little district 21, which kind of loops around like a snake through New York and covers all these, um, kind of republican areas. So I'm sort of in Trump territory right now. Mm. And some of the things a lot of things you see being shared on Facebook, you know, USA number one project.com or something. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously <laughs> kind of fake sites that have been set up. But a lot of it is anti socialism, anti-communism. And I think, oh my God, the Russians are probably creating websites that are that are yeah. fomenting divisions by getting people excited about how terrible socialism and how terrible communism
1: is but they will work into it and it won't matter who it is that runs if it's Joe Biden or it's or it's Bernie Sanders they have a strategy what's and the strategy
0: in Canada though i mean are there divisions in canada they can take advantage of or are they just sort of well you guys are fine right now
1: well you know we just had an election in october and um, it was it was kind of a silly election. It was sort of focused on personality, and you know Trudeau and so forth. Some things he unsavory things he had did he had done when he was much younger. But he won. And politically, Canada is a very different country than the United States. We might watch the TV and watch all the movies and read all American books, but. It's a pretty progressive, open-minded country, and people, did, people didn't go for that stuff. They didn't like it. They didn't like the divisiveness. So he won a minority government, and right now he's very popular again because he's done all the right things about the crash of the of Ukrainian plane that was on the way from, you know, that was shot down in Tehran. And people are, are feeling very sympathetic and good about him. So there hasn't been a swing to the right in Canada. It, it just hasn't happened. If anything, I think Canada's prob will probably move even more to the left over the next couple of years.
0: You just have this huge cautionary tale unwinding just below you.
1: We do. And Canadians don't like Donald Trump very much. Even, you know, conservative Canadians aren't really for this stuff. And, you know, we have a state-run broadcast corporation, the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and it's it's pretty progressive, too. Our newspapers are are pretty progressive. They just they're just aren't the same forces. The Conservative Party here tried to run on things, anti-gay stuff and anti-abortion stuff, like so conservative social issues, you know, mm-hmm. and it didn't go... It didn't go over at all and there's no big evangelical movement either so where do you get your base here you don't have the same base that Trump found and it seems to stick with him no matter what he does (laughs) reading the stuff and knowing about the stuff or watching the stuff about Russian interference and destabilizing Western governments is more important than it's been since the end of the Second World War and throughout the, you know, the major points of the Cold War, because, you know, there's a very good chance Trump wouldn't have won if he hadn't had some help from the Russians. Oh, my God, of course. Yeah. yeah so when we look at these stories like, the, you know, like my story and tons of other stories about about what the Russians did and are doing, even if they're in novels, I think they're very <laughs> instructive about what. The Russians are playing a long game
0: why didn't you maybe why didn't you write a nonfiction book about the Guzenko affair why did you Why did you feel that fiction would have an impact or is it just your forte
1: Well, it's just my forte and and I wanted to write fiction and also I think Amy Knight did a great job in how the Cold War started. I mean she's an American historian, and she she covered it in that book.
0: Have you read Guzenko's book that long novel of his? I
1: have, I've read parts of it I haven't, I, I think it was ghosted, you know, a lot of it I haven't read the whole I haven't read the whole thing but um, I certainly have read deeply <laughs> in in that period and what was going on, you know, there's a great I mean, I could list off so many fantastic books to you but there's a great new book that came out, The Spy Who Changed the World by a Russian, a woman, a Russian national who's doing a PhD at Leeds in the UK. And she talks about the huge number of spies that the Russians had in the US before and during World War II and how they had infiltrated every single area of American industry and research and development. I had to get it from Europe. I haven't seen it on sale here.
0: Oh, that sounds interesting.
1: Yeah, it's called The Spy Who Changed the World. I think you would really like it. Okay. So, good.
0: um I guess I had one more kind of thought or question. I don't know if it's going to end up on the show or not, but one of the things that came out in Amy Knight's book was that a lot of these GRU guys, they they still meet and I've heard about it as well as they, you know, Putin actually joined them at one point and You know, they're the old cold warriors of the GRU and the KGB. And I mean, she brings up the irony that, you know, the the people who were the believers, the true believers in communism ended up paying for it and having to do terms in jail. But it said that the Russians, that these GRU guys were, they, they weren't really believers in communism, that it was a, like, almost like a marketable ideology that they could use to attract people with information that they needed. Is there anything that exists today that's that's like that as well i mean it might necessarily be communism but
1: populism i think and the very deep connection between populism and non-democratic authoritarian governments i mean there's such a huge historical streak of authoritarian governments in russia People seem to, to a certain extent, thrive on it. They feel safer with an authoritarian government than they do. I mean, what I do think is happening and is unbelievably serious is the downward trend of liberal democracies across the world. And I think they're selling us that. They want us to believe that liberal democracies don't work in favor of the people or the majority of people, mm-hmm. something that I'm just... Personally, so against because I think it leads to authoritarian dictatorships. I'm very concerned about that. So I think this idea of, of populism, be it right, you know, Mark, what I really think,
0: native or nativism, protectionism,
1: nativism, you know, Little England, and America first. I mean, you see it in Brexit, right? Right. Where the the very hard left, the very far left, and the very far right aren't very far apart these days mm-hmm. so that you can get a, Jer- a Jeremy Corbyn not willing to speak out against Brexit, and now they're going to have it. So what's the difference between the, between the conservative right in Britain and the very hard left in Britain? I'm not, I'm not so sure. And I find that so dangerous that it's hard to contemplate. But I think it's true. Look at Venezuela, what's happened there. Um, when you start starving your own people, then I'd say the ideology that you mouth doesn't really matter too much.
0: Well, I think that's a good place to end it. I'm mm. I'm, I'm, having a late lunch <laughs>
1: today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to do the same. <laughs> no. This was
0: fun. It started out as a talk about, you know, the... Gazenko affair, and then we ended up having a little chat about politics. Probably not unlike people had at the Chateau Laurier back in the day.
1: Exactly.
0: You know, so this was a, this was a wonderful international conversation that I had here, and I really enjoyed having you on the show.
1: Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed talking with you, and it was a real pleasure.
0: So that was my live drop with Joyce Wayne. You can find out more information about her and her work at joycewayne.com. And her book, The Last Night of the World, is just going into its second printing. You can get it wherever you get your books. Also, um, I referred to this nonfiction book called How the Cold War Began by Amy Knight. Um, It's a a wonderful, comprehensive explanation of what was going on in Cold War Ottawa. And if you like the show, keep listening. Thank you very much. More information will be at the show notes at thelivedrop.com. End of transmission.